ICA presents. The noise you just heard is the sound of the interrobang, a non-standard punctuation mark. The interrobang is as powerful as it is unique and obscure. Its appearance is its explanation, an exclamation mark superimposed directly on a question mark. A sentence using an interrobang is equally inquisitive as it is rhetorical. It demands the attention of an exclamation while accepting its own infallibility. It's a question not seeking a full answer and an answer designed to lead to more questions. Unlike other punctuation marks, the interrobang is a recent phenomenon. It was invented by an ad executive in the spring of 1962 for clearer communication in print advertisements. 60 years later, the interrobang finds new resurgence at the International Communication Association 72nd annual conference anchored in Paris with regional hubs around the world from the 26th of May to the 30th of May 2022. I am Nosher Contract, the president elect of the International Communication Association and a faculty member at Northwestern University in the United States. The theme I selected for the 2022 conference One world, one network ends with an interrobang. Our inclusion of the symbol shows our underlying connectedness and disconnects as a global community. This podcast series will showcase reflections by the six co-chairs of the conference theme. Brooke Foucault Wells from Northeastern University in the United States, Ingrid Bachmann from Catholica University in Santiago, Chile, Shakuntala Banaji from the London School of Economics in England, Dean Freelon from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill in the United States, Jack Cho from the National University of Singapore, and Herman Wasserman from the University of Cape Town, South Africa. In this introductory episode, you will hear briefly from each of the co-chairs about their own perspective on the conference theme, something that they will get to expand upon in upcoming episodes that each of them will host. We look to simultaneously celebrate and problematize the oneness in the modern age of global communication. My name is Brooke Foucault-Wells. I'm an associate professor and the interim department chair of the Department of Communication Studies at Northeastern University. So I've been studying online communication since uh, the late 1990s, back when you used to get the internet um, in the mail. I started out as a little undergrad and was really interested in questions about the, the newest media of the time, online communication. I've uh, sort of followed along the way, looking at how people form social relationships relationships on the internet. Um, so yes, I'm Ingrid Beckman. I'm an associate professor in the School of Communication in Chile. Usually my scholarship has to do with journalism studies, uh, feminist studies, and political communication. I've actually used to be a journalist, a reporter. At one point, I decided that I wanted to uh, answer questions instead of just asking them. So I decided that I needed to go back to academia, get a degree, and starting asking how people made sense of the world. That's how I got into it. I'm Shakuntala Banaji. I'm a professor of media communication, media culture and social change at the London School of Economics. And I've been teaching now nearly 30 years. I started off 
from an education background, teaching in high schools, making videos about things that were meaningful to 15 to 18 year olds and looking at local neighborhoods and seeing how they were represented on the news. I am interested in the relationship between the world and representation and between representation and politics. And so this has led to recent work on disinformation online um, through WhatsApp and through other social media. And I'm currently looking at hate um, of all forms in various different countries through social media. Hi, everyone. I'm uh, Jack Cho. I'm a professor at the Department of Communications and New Media. National University of Singapore. One line that I always use is uh, analyzing media and communication along the line of social class differentiation, especially given China, you know, or Southeast Asia or Asia as a whole as a continent going through rapid industrialization and urbanization. I started uh, my trajectory in media and communication studies when I was an undergraduate student in Beijing when China just started to have its internet. I was going around the Zhongguancun area interviewing the first generation of internet entrepreneurs in China. And and then decided that's something I want to study for the rest of my life. So digitization actually uh, goes alongside this uh, epic historical processes of remaking societies. My work since then have been following the trajectory, going to the communities, uh, talking to the uh, uh, working people focusing on class, okay, and uh, both higher class, lower class, and especially in the context of digital labor. That's how I ended up being in Singapore and doing this thing that I feel very excited about. My name is Dean Freelon. I'm an associate professor at the UNC Hussman School of Journalism and Media and a principal researcher at the Center for Information Technology and Public Life. Uh, you know, when you're somebody who's a, a minority, I think uh, within the context of communication generally, and I say specifically, there's a kind of duality to your identity. I'm speaking as someone who's a, you know, a, a minority who is um, engaged in communication research, uh, a traditionally uh, white-dominated field, as most of the social sciences are. On the one hand, you want to be connected to the areas of your professional interest. You want to be uh, networked, and you go to the sessions that are or that pertains to the specific areas that you're interested in. On the other hand, I think you want to be seen for who you are. You want to understand that there's space for your identity. You know, I think that the ability to sort of move back and forth between sort of an identity-centric to a, a part that is more focused on the professional aspects uh, will be really critical in terms of uh, carving out space for people who have traditionally been underrepresented both in the field and in the professional organizations. My name is Herman Wasserman. I'm professor of media studies here at the University of Cape Town. Well, I started as a journalist. I worked as a journalist, um, and but my formal schooling was mostly in literature. So my PhD was actually in, in literature. And in my dissertation, I looked at, I used post-colonial theory to look at uh, representations um, of identity uh, post-apartheid. And some of that, I think, has uh, shaped my way of thinking also in terms of uh, narrative, discourse, and power relations, which I think has subsequently also shaped my work in media studies. My main areas of, of work in, in media and journalism studies, lately more in comparative work and geopolitics. 
At the moment, I'm uh, looking at the area of disinformation. I think many of us are uh, really interested in that at the moment. Um, again, looking at what that means in an African context and more broadly in a global South context. So we see disinformation actually having a very real impact in uh, societies in the global South. So um, it has, um, it, I think it has very real world consequences for us here in, in, in the global South as well. So I took a much more personal view on the theme One World, One Network and thought a lot about the experience of the past 18 months or so, particularly for those of us with caregiving responsibilities. We sort of simultaneously lost uh, the infrastructure of caregiving and the infrastructure associated with supporting caregivers at the same time that we lost our mobility. And there's uh, a lot of ways the academic life is privileged when it comes to coping with these sorts of things. So, so we have flexible schedules, we can largely work at home and so on. We kind of go where the jobs are I and mean, we tend to become pretty detached from our communities of origin and the kinds of support structures one might traditionally rely on in order to cope with caregiving challenges. And, and you know, I think that really came to a head this year when a lot of us found ourselves in the rather unfortunate position of being isolated from family, being isolated from uh, the, the support networks that we had managed to build up in whatever community we found ourselves landed in and saddled with the responsibility to do the caregiving for our children, for our elderly or sick relatives, many of whom didn't live close by, um, as well as for our students. Um, and, you know, ever the optimist, I will share a kind of optimistic take that, that one of the things that happened this year is that caregivers, academic caregivers in particular, uh, we found one another online, right? And I think it became this moment of action that we realized that there is a common experience here to articulate and a common set of hardships, and particularly that we need more support from our institutions. So from our universities, not only did the caregivers, uh, you know, find each other, but we we're starting to see some infrastructure built around sustaining that network moving forward. So I'm excited to see what develops in the years to come. When I think about networks, actually the first thing that I think of is the concept of intimate publics. And that is a concept from uh, Lauren Berlant, and it means uh, the effect of feeling political together. And I love that concept because it actually means people sharing experiences and rallying together around that experience. Uh, when you remember the dictum, uh, the feminist dictum that the personal is political, it matters. It's not just these individual experiences, it's people connecting. And it's quite uh, important when you consider that this intimacies that people are sharing are not really that intimate in the sense that they are not affecting just one individual. They are actually attracting attention. That connectedness is very important at the same time, it is not perfect. I mean, a hashtag on itself does not uh, fix uh, problems. It, it calls attention to problems, but it doesn't fix uh, anything uh, when, when you think about it. But I think that is meaningful when you supplement that sense of connectedness, of, of collectivity, uh, with attention to broader principles and the politics behind that experience about that. So when I first heard the, the conference theme or read the conference theme, One World, One Network, I have to say honestly that I couldn't help a sigh of, of sort of depression taking me all the way back to teaching Marshall McLuhan's Global Village. And I sighed because for some people it always has been one world. And as far as they're concerned, their network is the network. 
how Ingrid conceptualizes the networks of sort of intimacy and intimate publicness in politics is, is also true. We can retain a sense of, of, of real complexity going beyond the celebration of the one world, one network idea. It's, it's both misleading and it's also dangerous in some ways. So in 2018, for instance, there were upwards of 50 people lynched across India because of WhatsApp forwards. And these 50 people who were lynched were lynched to death in the most terrifying and horrific ways. And their lynchings were videoed and circulated on WhatsApp and on YouTube until they were taken down on Facebook and sometimes even on Twitter. And the perpetrators um, were sometimes celebrated by those intimate, knowing publics because the people who'd been killed belonged to categories who had been othered either historically or very quickly by the representations in the WhatsApp forwards. So all the while, continuing along with the idea from Lauren Berlant that Ingrid brought up so beautifully, these affective publics, in my view, are being swayed to greater and greater degrees towards sort of a right-wing radicalization that leaves very little breathing room for what one had celebrated about the 1960s and 1970s, you know, the opening up of ideas and thought, sort of a free society where people are able to interact with each other and use media to imagine new worlds. I'm going to leave it there because I think there's loads of interesting things that my colleagues will also have to say about this. So when I heard the conference theme, uh, One World, One Network, it immediately reminded me of Beijing Olympic 2008 when the uh, official slogan was One World, One Dream. Don't forget about the network of the voiceless. Okay, the working class are oftentimes too busy to talk, but they have their ways of communicating, including through digital media in their own stratosphere far away from our ivory tower. It's an essential task for scholars working in the global south, but also working with working class populations to uh, you know, readjust our uh, listening posts so that we can hear the voice of the voiceless and see the network of the powerless. On the one hand, we need to have the uh, pessimism of the intellect to see the empirical world as problematic as it is there still has to be the optimism of the will. When we consider networks, networks are not only uh, static, okay? Networks are also transhistorical. As a as scholar engaging in uh, longstanding discussions about communication, about media and social problems, and also media as ways to create sustainable uh, development conditions, I think uh, that is particularly important in dark moments like this. I'm thinking about people who were presenting these ideas being the ideal of media connectivity, of having these shared experiences. And I'm realizing that a lot of the people who were coming up with I these ideas, not all of them were white men, uh, but they were people at the very top of the socioeconomic political hierarchy. So they are sort of defining the terms of this normative good for everybody else, you know, of which they constitute something of a minority. There's also the idea that it's very corporate friendly. So it's very, very friendly to capitalism. So who is providing, you know, the infrastructure uh, for this, whether it's the hardware or uh, the social uh, uh, media, the software, the networks, 
um, that people have to pay into, or they end up having to volunteer their personal information as a, as a form of payment to get access to these kinds of networks. That is sort of, I think, the normative reality that we are kind of heirs to uh, now in 2021. Moving from the normative to the descriptive, I'm looking around and everywhere I see division. I see people who are divided uh, by race, by ideology, um, by gender. And it's very hard for me, to be honest, to see uh, too much evidence empirically of one world and one network. Obviously, we share the planet, uh, but the very ways in which we view what is going on in our homes, in our communities, and around the world is completely different. So we are at a point, I think, where uh, our shared perceptions of the world, our subjective beliefs that we are, in fact, in one world, one network, uh, have been really been shattered. And it's really hard to figure out how to put that right. Uh, but then again, I'm wondering whether that's really a good thing to do in the first place. Do we really want to go back to that vision of the one world uh, and one network? And I sort of see this idea of one world, one network as something that, um, you know, I'll have to wait for in the data. Uh, but I have to admit, I'm not really seeing that much of it uh, in terms of what I'm studying. I'm, I'm very glad that we decided to put a question mark, at least partial question mark behind the conference theme, because I do think we need to question this. Um, for me, the, maybe the central question is to whom and to what, and also for whom are we connected? Um, what inequalities remain hidden behind that notion of oneness and connectivity? And I think again here, I think the pandemic has shown us very clearly that, you know, um, we have to ask those questions. There's a, that saying that we're all in the same storm, but we're not in the same boat. What for me is interesting here is the way that there's almost a very myopic view of what connectivity and globality means, and that that notion of connectivity is often invoked with a very particular political um, purpose. And that political purpose is not always explicit either. We also have to think about this global connectivity as a very particular global connectivity, which is often the globalization of neoliberalism. If we look at the conference next year, who are the people that will be able to attend in person? Uh, and I'm not even talking about economics and, and being able to buy a plane ticket. I'm talking about vaccinations, for instance, vaccine passports. The lack of mobility or the limitation of mobility that scholars in the North have experienced in the past year, to be honest, it resonates um, with scholars in the South that have been struggling with um, mobility issues for, for many, many years for other reasons. And so we have to ask, for whom is this one world working? How is this working? Who are the winners and the losers of, of this um, networking? These globalized networks might, in fact, just map onto much older networks of colonial discourse. The notion of communication scholarship, many of these patterns are also repeated despite all the best efforts, all our best efforts to try and, 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 and rectify this. We have to ask the question, I think, very explicitly, an international communication association for whom? One World, One Network is sponsored by the Annenberg Center for Collaborative Communication at both the Annenberg School for Communication at the University of Pennsylvania and the Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism at the University of Southern California. This podcast series is presented by the International Communication Association as part of the lead-up to the 2022 ICA conference, which will take place from May 26th through May 30th, 2022. In the next episode, we will continue exploring the conference's theme, One World, One Network, from the perspectives of the conference's six co-chairs. 
Our producers are Max Lubers and Nick Song. Additional production support was provided by Elizabeth Gasparco. For more information about our participants on this episode, as well as our sponsor, as well as the history behind the Interrobank, be sure to check the show notes in the episode description.